Because our way of, of making sure that you have some background knowledge of some of the issues that were going on, because it's impossible to understand the racial and ethnic tensions that were going on in first century Palestine and in the Roman Empire without doing some background research. Too many of us read the Gospels from a dominant perspective. We are Western Americans who see the world from that perspective. The Jewish people were not coming from that perspective. We're more like the Roman Empire than we are like Palestine when it comes to understanding a lot of issues in Scripture. That's the only way that I could possibly think about how good and well-meaning Christians in the first part of the 20th century could use the Scripture to justify slavery. is because they were reading it from a dominant position. An American hegemony. An American, we're in charge, we're dominant, everybody else just sort of uh, play a second fiddle to what we're doing. It's the only way that I can, I can think that we would have allowed and thought that way uh, you know, so long ago. So, uh, it's important that we don't make that same mistake. That we read the scripture afresh, we read it from the perspective of first century Palestine, to hear the messages that Jesus were giving, many of which were political, and were trying to change the structural, social, economic order of the day. Contrary to the belief that many of us have articulated that Jesus just really wasn't a social activist. He just really wasn't interested in issues like slavery and gender and equality because he was interested in more important issues like spiritual issues. What does that mean? How could they possibly be spiritual issues that don't include some of the worst social crimes of their day? Is spirituality so divorced, so separated from what goes in our society that we can truly read the scripture and not focus on how much Jesus was ready to overturn the social ways of thinking of his day. Ready to force people outside of their comfortable racial, national, ethnic, cultural backgrounds to be able to see people as humans and as children of God despite what they looked like on the outside. Yeah. Or despite what they, how they spoke. Or what their reputation was as a people. we got to get past that. And if we're going to do that, we've got to understand the background behind a lot of these things that we just read over, gloss over, and say, oh, that's one more territory I can't pronounce, and so I'll just pretend like basically those people are basically the same as all the other people are mentioned here. It's not going to work. And so hopefully the people who would participate in that class on Sunday mornings will spend some time on Facebook writing about their thoughts and their experiences so the rest of you can kind of benefit for, uh, from that knowledge without actually having to go uh, to the class on Sunday mornings. Okay? And we had a great class this morning. I thought it was really, really great and really interesting. Mostly because I spoke the whole time. Um, so, just, sorry. All right, so here we go. I was really overwhelmed this week in this sermon topic because Sierra's question was way too difficult to answer, um, which was something along the lines of like, I don't even remember the question. I didn't even write the question down. But how does race, how has race played out in the story of Christianity? How am I going to do that? How am I going to talk about the last 2,000 years of race in Christian history? I mean, it's just not possible. So the best that I can do is talk a little bit about race in first century Palestine. To try to kind of help you understand some of the things that were going on at the time period that may or may not enlighten you on the racial and ethnic differences and the kinds of people we see in the story of the Gospels. So that's what I'm going to do. 
Or I'm not going to talk about the Middle Ages. I'm not going to talk about, you know, uh, Constantine making, you know, Christianity, uh, you know, the strip state religion or the Reformation movement or, you know, slavery in Europe and in the Americas. It, we just, I don't have time for any of that. Maybe later on in the series, when we get, particularly when we start to get into Paul's letter to the churches, can we begin to kind of address some of these specific uh, histories and groups? And that'll be better. But for now, we've got to kind of lay a foundation, and we're going to start with the foundation that the gospel gives us of first century Palestine. Because I do believe that that time period was very much chosen by God. Uh, and do believe that there, are no better, there was no better time period for God to do what he did through Jesus than that time period that he chose. And so we need to take serious uh, the historical implications of, of the, the space and time that the gospel was in. So I've talked about some of this already. <laughs> One of the things that's really important, and I think this is going to more be a list of suggestions and ideas, and it is going to be a really structured, well-articulated sermon, so I apologize about that. You know what? Let me do something different. Close your eyes. Let's just close our eyes. If you want. If you don't want to, that's fine. You're going to drive from your home to Denton Church this morning. All right? Or walk if you live close enough. And you're going to stop off at a breakfast place. Maybe a breakfast place that's a new place. But you get out of your car... And for some reason, you're in the black part of town. A lot of black people around you, right? And they're eating and they're talking. Some are wearing suits ready to go to church. Some are in cars that seem lifted with like 40-inch tires on them. <laughs> but you don't know where the wheel and the tire uh, really are different. They look the same. There's loud music. There's laughter. Maybe you feel comfortable, maybe you feel uncomfortable. You get your breakfast and you leave. Drive a little further down the street, you got to get gas. But the gas station you happen to stop off at is a gas station that you really kind of can't pronounce the name of. Looks Spanish, Latin something. You get out, you get gas, and all around you are Latino people. And they're speaking a different language, and they have lifted trucks, and they have trailers. Some are in suits, ready to go to church. Some are just sitting around. Get your gas. Maybe you feel comfortable. Maybe you don't. Get into a car. Head a little further. Problem with your car. Something happens. A wheel falls off. You can't find your battery. <laughs> You're around a lot of trees. Not really a lot to see. Someone named Bubba comes up behind you in his pickup truck. You almost can't make him out because he's got a camouflage jacket on. <laughs> and he offers in the most condescending but friendly and kindly way to help you out with your little car. And it gets fixed, and you continue down the road. <coughs> and in the meantime, you pass through a neighborhood of opulence, large homes. You don't really see very many people out. It's beautiful, it's wonderful. Maybe every now and again you get a wave or a stare. <coughs> and then you make your way uh, to church finally. 
You know, a lot of us, this is not our experience, right? We don't pass through that many parts of town usually and really know it or pay attention to it. And if you're probably pretty uncomfortable most of the time in that story, you can probably say you're a part of the dominant group, racial group in our society. If you weren't, and at times you're like, oh yeah, you know, that sounds kind of familiar. And stereotypes, gross stereotypes aside, um, this was really the day of first century Palestine. People everywhere were spread out. There were not the kind of enclaves even that we see today where people could pretty much guarantee they would only be around people like them. Trade routes, particularly when the Galileans had to go down to Judea for the various festivals, would have to pass through the awful place of Samaria. And one of the real issues we have in trying to recognize some of the commonalities between the biblical testimony in Palestine in our own day and age is it wasn't that they had the same concept and idea of race as we do. We have a very different notion as Americans of race than many of our contemporaries today and people who have lived historically. Most of us, race being skin color which biologically is completely useless and insufficient. Biology does not, like most people think, separate us along racial lines. You may as well just take people who have any and outie belly buttons or connected and disconnected ears and begin to separate them. Most people historically separated people based on at least three indicators that had nothing to do with their outward skin color. Their ethnicity or nationality, which in some ways in, in first century Palestine had less to do with nationality and more just locality or their city area. Cities had reputations. Guys, we can get up and drive across the Metroplex and pass through 15 cities. In Palestine, you wouldn't really walk through more than one or two cities in like a week period. So the space was a little bit further out, which meant that they didn't, they had these really strong ideas about people who were in a different city or in a different area than them. Religion was the second thing. So certainly religion or lack thereof or weird mixes of religion separated one group from the other. And then the last was language, which was a really big deal. Many of us don't quite understand or appreciate that simply because we're in an area where for the most part people speak English and every now and again Spanish. But in first century Palestine you had a variety of languages represented. And if not languages, dialects. Where people would be literally speaking the same language, but it would be the difference between like Indian English and American English. I chose to go to India six years ago. One of the main reasons is because I was like, well, it'll be easy because they speak English. And then when I got there, I realized it wasn't exactly the same type of English that I was used to. It was sort of like an interesting mix of uh, various Indian languages and English, most of which, about 90%, I had no idea what they were saying. <laughs> okay? My mistake. So these historical groups, they were really based uh, in their prejudices and their understanding of the world was far more based on their religion, language, and their ethnicity than it ever was about race. This shouldn't be very surprising to you. The, may, the last three major genocides in the, in the last decade have all been those same types of wars. I don't know very many of you who could tell the difference between a Hutu and a Tutsi or a Serbian and a Croatian. 
because they look the same racially, but they're vastly different when it comes to their ethnicity, their language, their religion, and their culture. So one of the real transition or translation points we've got to make when we're reading the New Testament is, is recognizing that their, our modern concept of race, which by the way is completely wrong and, and itself a social construct, which is not very helpful. Americans are the only ones that have these sort of five specific racial categories that don't, again, make any sense. Leave it up to us to lump two-thirds of the world into one category called Asians. <laughs> And then in our U.S. census to somehow consider Arabic people as white. Oh my goodness, this is confusing. Our ideas on race are screwed up, messed up, and really ultimately simply come from things that we just sort of decided somewhere along the point. No biological point. You know, I ask my students sometimes, can you determine someone's race from their DNA? And it's a loaded question. Of course you can and of course, the next question is, well, then why when someone commits a crime do we say, well, this is most likely a black person, most likely a Latino person? Because people are taking ethnic markers in DNA and translating that into our screwed up system of racial categorization. So when I find an ethnic identifier that says, oh, well, this person came from Eastern Africa, I can pretty much say in American terms, that person's black. As if Eastern African people and Western African people are really all basically the same person. I in no never mind, I'm not gonna say that. Filter, good filter, good filter. <laughs> so we've got to make the translation, alright? Race uh, versus ethnicity. We're gonna talk about race because race is such a central and important term in, in American language, and it's a term that has, has taken on far too much uh, meaning without actually meaning very much of anything. And so that's why we're we're doing this. But if you're gonna translate the time and period to Palestine, you've got to recognize that they have the same kind of issues and divisiveness as we do in some parts, but in others, particularly in regard to how we see race in, in terms of skin color, is very, very different. Let me make one more statement, and this is just a, kind of a general statement about um, humans. Okay, One of my favorite, favorite, favorite uh, you know, um, fields of study in psychology is called heuristics. Anyone study heuristics? No? Oh, man, you're missing out. Just do a Google search on heuristics. H-E-U-R-I-S-T-I-C. H-E-U-R-I-S-T-I-C. And for those of you who don't know, um, I'm sorry, I'm not intentionally trying to impress you with a big word. I just had the unfortunate advantage of spending 10 years in school, and so that was sort of bred into me, that the cooler words you could use, the more status you could gain. Um, so there we go. If you don't think I'm cool, then let me say the word again. Heuristic. <laughs> and you guys don't know, and I do. So that's you. Heuristics are ultimately shortcuts in our thinking. Almost all humans, and by the way, chimpanzees and other animals, experience heuristics, errors or biases in our thinking. And they're predictable. There's lots of them. Attributional bias, gambler's fallacy. Um, uh, there's uh, risk aversion, there's uh, in-group, out-group bias, which is what I'm going to talk about now. I mean, there's literally a list. This is one of the major fields of study that moved us from a rational and modern mindset about the world, which said that humans are more or less capable of rational thinking, into our current day and age, which is sort of this like quasi-postmodernism, subjective existentialism. You know what? We're not, we're not rational, we're super irrational. The best we have is our own experience and our own perspective. 
Okay, this field of study, heuristics, helped propel us in the 50s and 60s into this subjective, uh, postmodern way of looking at the world. Because we thought, well, if we're not rational, then why even pretend to be? Let's just all be irrational. <laughs> Which is really what postmodernism says. Who cares about objective evidence? Who cares about rationalism? My perspective is valuable and equal to your perspective, which is valuable, so long as you don't tell me that my perspective is objectively wrong because we all know uh, objective facts just aren't interesting or true or, or whatever. That's really the thematic statement of postmodernism, and whether or not we think we believe that, we are all deeply affected by that movement. And we are all postmodern in our way of thinking. Okay? Uh, anytime we get on Google to search to try to prove our point, regardless of where the source comes from, we are showing our irrationality through, by the way, what's called the availability bias. <laughs> um, so, in outgroup bias is this simple psychological problem that all of us have that we have a tendency in order to feel safe and secure and to belong we will maximize stereotypes of people who are outside of our group and minimize stereotypes of people who we see as inside of our group and belonging to it. So when I'm driving down the road, and this is the example I use in my class, and I'll use it with you even though it's somewhat offensive, and I see a van full of Latinos, or let's be real, let's call them Mexicans, because we all know that all Latinos are Mexican. Um, I thought I'd get more of a, you know... Yeah, I guess not. Just accepting it, huh? You know, just one more white guy. You know, being okay. Um, and they're chock full, and the van is just full of it. And I'm thinking, oh, those Latinos always traveling in packs. And I've ignored the fact that three or four Latinos have passed by me, one per car. What I'm doing is ultimately in-group, out-group bias. I'm maximizing stereotypes that ultimately support what it is I want to believe while minimizing or ignoring stereotypes that counter while also ignoring that I'm very much doing the stereotypical white thing, which is being racist <laughs> or prejudiced. Sort of like a side thought. We all do it. It doesn't matter whether you're black, white, dominant group, subordinate group. All do the out-group, in-group bias. So... As humans in first century Palestine, the Jewish people, the Samaritans, the Phoenicians, the Idumeans, the Romans, they were all doing the same stuff, guys. Yeah, their social environment was, was very different than ours, but I guarantee you as a part of their human nature, they were doing the in-group, out-group bias. And in some ways, they were far more racist than we find ourselves today. Far more. Not, again, so much in terms of outside color, but in terms of their seeing some groups as lower than and as despised and as not deserving equal rights. And for them, it was less about color. Uh, again, like I said, so when the Roman Empire conquered a group of people, whether it was Ethiopians or whatever, they would generally let the aristocracy uh, be Hellenized, come into Greek and Roman culture, whereas the poor people would be enslaved. But they weren't saying, well, let's enslave all Ethiopians, or worse, all black people like the U.S. Uh, did, regardless of their social caste, class, and ethnicity. So it's a different version of racism, but racism all the life. And certainly our system is not anything comparable to the kind of system we saw back then uh, in terms of just how few privileges people of other ethnic groups uh, could access. Okay? 
So we all have this in-out group bias. And the, the quicker we uh, understand that, uh, the more likely we can appreciate it. Now I will say one more thing. Those whose group is the in-group as a majority in society have fewer opportunities to see just how much they're maximizing the stereotypes of various outgroups. Simply because their stuff, their culture, their understanding of the world is the dominant and majority culture, and so they're not having to constantly come up against contrary examples to their outgroup bias. And that's incredibly important. Still, a lot of well-meaning white people in our society don't seem to understand the idea of white privilege. And particularly, white privilege among people who are in the upper middle class and middle class of our society. Because arguably, there are plenty of white people at the bottom of our society who are worse off than plenty of blacks, Latinos. And next week, guys, we're going to go into all the data on this. I'm going to show it all to you in terms of the, the varying wealth opportunities, racial opportunities, educational attainment, crime statistics. I'm just going to go through it all. We're going to lay it all out there on the table. All the statistics and surveys and research about the differences in racial and ethnic groups in our society. We're just going to throw it out there. I'm not going to talk about why. I'm just going to give it to you in a talk that I call the state of race and ethnicity in American society. Okay? <clears throat> But it's, it's important to understand this. And this is true not of just white people, but of any dominant group in any society that has power. This is not some white person thing, although certainly over the last four or five hundred uh, years, we've seen a very targeted European and white shade to the kind of imperialism and, uh, and maximization of stereotypes uh, in our society. It's just true. Deal with it. And if you can't deal with it, I don't want to tell you. You're not paying attention to history. I'm going to switch gears completely here, okay? And I'm going to talk a little bit about the economics and politics of first century Palestine, which, you know, we tend to think of, of economics, politics, religion as these separate categorical fields. And although they don't function near as separately as we think they do, we at least talk about them in ways that, are, that we think of them as different. But one of the other important kind of tips about first century Palestine is these were all wrapped up into one, guys. There was no such thing as the separation of church, uh, state, and church. The separation of an economic system and a political system. These were all one. It was a package deal. And it was not a choice that people made. <laughs> it was a system that was placed onto them. Okay? Whether they be free Roman citizens or conquered Palestinians. It was a system that they were subject to. And it was a system that there wasn't a pick and choose. And it wasn't a, well, our economy is this way, our politics are this way, our religion is this way. It was all wrapped up into a neat package, and it was circular. Every system went to explain some other system, and it all worked together. And by work, I mean it happened together. Not necessarily saying it was a good system, because it wasn't for most people living in that day and age. Let me say one more thing. Most of what we have in the way of history and philosophy of this time period came from elite 
dominant group members. That's what we got. You think Josephus, the great Jewish historian, was an exception to that rule? Please. He was well-fed, well-taken-care-of, Jewish sympathizer. And most of his bias was towards the Roman Empire. He was fine. He was one of the first people that defected when the Romans came and took over Galilee on their way to destroy the temple in AD 66 or 65. He was a sissy. And while he gave us a lot of great information and history of the culture, he also had a lot of really racially motivated things to say about Palestinians. And a lot of what he said is just not trustworthy. Most of what we have during that time period comes from the 1% or 2% of elites in that society. Except for the gospel. Yeah. Wasn't written by elites. It was written by common everyday folks. That the spirit had inhabited and people who had been around Jesus. The gospel stands out as one of the most amazing histories and narratives and uh, you know, guides to living that was written for the masses and by the masses. Which is such an amazing testimony to what we have in the gospel story. It also answers the question maybe that some ask, that why didn't Jesus himself write some of these? You know, we have Muhammad, he's writing his hadith, and why don't we have these written directly by Jesus himself? Why Mark? Why Peter? <laughs> With the exception of Paul, who himself was an elite who gave up on all of his elite status so he could be qualified to write what he wrote. We have uh, a series of writings from a subordinated people. From a minister of God who was God himself that worked among the subordinates. It's really great. <laughs> it's really a great story. And many of us, this is lost on us. Because it doesn't really affect us in our kind of dominant ideologies and in our dominant perspectives. But uh, this was a book that was written by subordinates, for subordinates. And that it took on so much acclaim and has, you know, standed through time is a testimony to how much it reaches the masses. One of the questions I get, which is a total side point, by the way, from a lot of different people is, well, if we have to know, and it's usually after taking one of my more difficult classes where I've decided to become a brat and only teach difficult things because it's interesting to me and I'm selfish. How is it that Christians throughout the ages who are poor and uneducated can grasp this stuff if we're the ones that have to do all this research to even understand? And my simple answer to that is they can grasp a whole lot more than we can just simply by the lives they live. That's right. It takes us modern, dominant uh, folks to research all that we have to research to even be able to understand the perspective of a subordinate. <laughs> it's the marginalized who understand the gospel far better than we do. They don't need the kind of study that we need to jog us into a subordinate understanding of the world. Into a uh, barter system understanding of the world. Into a kinship type understanding of the world. We have so many new inventions that had nothing to do with the gospel that we're the ones that have to relearn our own culture and history and put it in perspective of how most people who have lived have lived their lives to even begin to understand the gospel. We're the ones at a disadvantage there. 
not the majority of people who have ever lived or who are living on the face of this earth. Which should give us a real sense that we owe it to our Christianity and certainly to the God that we love to do the kind of research we need to do on this stuff. To not sit passively and idly by and not study the resources that we have, which tell us more about ourselves in comparison to those first century people than it does about those first century people themselves. And that's just a uh, side thought. Okay, so the economics of the day. We're going to get into this a little bit later in a few weeks, and we're going to talk about classism and the role of you know, various social classes and how that further complicates the issues of race and ethnicity in our society. I know this sounds like a very sociological agenda. That's because it is. Um, we're going to have to figure that out and kind of talk about that. So uh, it's important to understand really quickly. I'm going to kind of move through this uh, as quickly as I can. Um, the economics of, of Palestine uh, was really, really kind of interesting. One, because the majority of people, particularly in Galilee and in the poorer parts of Palestine, I say poorer parts, there were plenty of rich people in Galilee, but particularly they were landowners, and many of them had Hellenistic influences, meaning that after an area was conquered, Rome would put particular people who sympathized with Rome over large swaths of land, meaning they would take Jewish homes uh, and basically replace them with Roman sympathizers, whether that was from Syria, whether it was from uh, other empires, doesn't really matter. They didn't care whether or not they were Jews. In fact, usually if, if they were a Jew, it meant that they would have their land taken away from them and be subjected to, at best, their own sort of daily subsistence, or at worst, some kind of indentured servitude, which is what most people who have been enslaved in our societies in the past have had to undergone, some kind of indentured servitude, where you owe so much that you'll never be able to get outside of what amounts to basically a slave-type lifestyle. Uh, although I will definitely say American slavery was far worse than indentured servants uh, had it in a lot of other cultures up to that point. So we've got this system of what's called reciprocity. And to really kind of clarify what that meant, and, and it's really the full term is kinship reciprocity, but don't worry about that. Basically, you think about it, there's no market that you go to. If you're not close to Rome, and don't live close to Jerusalem. So you're not going into some marketplace to buy goods. This is not at all how the economic system worked in first century Palestine, unless you lived in a large city or unless you lived in large cities in the Roman Empire. This whole market exchange model, which is more or less kind of what we have, did not exist for the peasant Galilean. He did not go to a city to buy and sell goods. Well, then how, of course, is he going to make it in his life? He is going to do what's called kinship reciprocity, which is still what most people live by in our current day and age. Most people don't have large, you know, huge markets to go to in and around their villages. They use a, a thing that's been called by cultural anthropologists kinship reciprocity. What that means is that I give gifts. And to people who are closest to me, I give gifts really without expecting anything in return. For those people who are a little bit distanced from me, I give gifts watching to make sure that the general balance between gift giving stays about right. So if I've got some distant cousin, which, again, back in First Palestine would have been a close family member. Let's say a distant cousin's cousin through marriage. I don't know. And I'm giving them gifts year after year to take care of them. And year after year, they haven't really been returning my gifts. I may at some point cut them off because they're not a close family member of mine. And therefore, that, that, that sort of like the uh, close family members who get gifts without asking don't get it. And then, of course, there were sort of quid pro quo gifts, which is you give me a gift, 
I immediately give you a gift back, which is about the closest thing that approximated the market exchange that we can find in a lot of these, these cities. Now, some of you are thinking, gosh, that's so boring. I don't even care. Well, fine. I don't care about you, all right? <laughs> I was just trying to wake you up. Um, well, that's going to create a very different environment for us understanding a lot of what Jesus says about gift giving, about giving in general, about taking care of people. When we read it from this perspective of a, of a market exchange, which is what a lot of us are used to. Now, the other point of this is that there's in these economies a central distribution, which means storehouses, right? And these storehouses are kind of a model based on the early models of Joseph's, uh, you know, brilliant economic planning where in times of famine or whatever, we take a, a giant supply of stuff so that we can equally distribute it to people whose land is set on fire, who, uh, you know, have had famines, who have had war. And so there are these huge storehouses in cities, uh, that particularly the Jewish aristocracy or the Jewish leaders, Sadducees, Pharisees, would keep control over these stockhouses and storehouses, and or Roman officials and Roman governors. In fact, a lot of people probably don't, don't know this. I certainly didn't know it when I first read it, but Romans were completely reliant on the breadbasket of Galilee for their food. Now, the Roman Empire was... Uh, completely reliant upon the bread coming out of Galilee, which brings to light so many exciting possibilities for the, this imagery Jesus uses of bread of life. And you go back and read through all of these bread stories, and if you miss the fact that the bread that they didn't have was largely going to Roman rich people through taxes and tributes and all this other stuff, because to be a, Gal a Galilean peasant didn't just mean that you were there to survive. Some Galilean peasants had as much as 50% of what they made taken away from them. Or they had a dutiful obligation to get it. Pay taxes to Caesar, pay taxes to the temple, give 30% of it to kinship reciprocity, taking care of people who maybe had a bad year last year, or distant cousins who expect something from me because they gave something to me in my hard times. And so to live as a Galilean peasant was to live a very difficult life, okay? You didn't have it easy like a lot of the artisans and craftsmen, you know, in the cities who didn't really produce much. They just more like kind of lived that hipster middle class lifestyle. Um, that's really the artisans and craftsmen of the first century were like modern day hipsters who like do art and like do cool stuff, but like no one really needs it. They just sort of like do it to express themselves, you know? No one's really like relying on them. And they're just kind of relying on these wealthy Roman patrons who just sort of give them money, uh, parents. And they just do what they do, you know? And that's really kind of like the system that they had. So, this is going to create this, this very, very uh, heavy animosity uh, moving from the Galileans to both the Jews, Pharisees in Jerusalem, and the Roman officials. Because they're giving all this bread... And their own, you know, livelihood to people who have it in excess. And they look at what they have at the end of the day and can't even feed and provide for their own families. Which is why so many of them were so excited when Jesus was providing bread. <laughs> yeah. And it also explains why so many of them hated Rome. But also hated the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees were no better. You see, in the original system of the law, 
the excess storehouse food was supposed to go to the Levites and the clergy to feed them because they couldn't feed themselves. Sounds like a good system. But fast forward to first century Palestine when the uh, you know, Levites and the priestly class were an aristocratic class. They had plenty of money and belongings just from their social status in society. They didn't need this extra. Yet they willfully continued to take the extras from the uh, Galilean peasants. And when Jesus talks about, you know, you nullify the tradition of God by, you know, tithing all these things, but then oppressing the poor around you. And the prophets talk about this all the time. The clergy had become a perverse, upper-class bunch of people who didn't care a lick about the masses. And the whole law had been turned upside down on its head. And providing for the people wasn't happening, even though there was plenty of excess. Sound like a society you know? So Galilee in particular was stuck between these two. On the one hand, they had the Roman Empire, which was taking their bread. And on the southern end, they had the Jewish aristocracy, who was taking their bread. (laughs) And it'd be one thing if the Jews looked at the Galileans and thought, well, yeah, they're our bread givers, so they're a really good group of them. But we know that's not how we look at the poor in our society. Instead, we stereotype them and tell, you know, they're really not that traditional. They're kind of like liberal Jews, which is how Jewish people thought of Galileans. And that's why Jesus of Nazareth was so important as a title. Because that was Jesus of the poor masses. Of the farmers. That's what Jewish aristocracy would have heard when they heard Jesus of Nazareth. And so would have everyone in locally would have heard the same thing. Jesus of podunk, rural, who knows where. That was the title that he was given. And it was the title that fit him because it's where he did most of his ministry. It's where he started. And he did most of his ministry among the masses, among the people. And so this would give rise to what's called social banditry. And, and, and banditry was basically these Robin Hood type folks in Galilee who would literally rob the rich, whether that was Pharisees, whether it was Romans, but they were literally Robin Hoods. They weren't just robbing for no reason. They were robbing in symbolic ways that would communicate political ideations or idealizations. I mean, they were robbing people to send a message, we're not going to accept this kind of poverty and this kind of system that we've seen in the past. And of course they were called thieves. In fact, the two thieves on the cross were most likely social bandits. People who had stolen. And in fact, if you look at the different gospels and how they take these accounts, it's not thief in every one. It's criminal. It's thief. And then there's a third one and I can't even remember what it is. So there's this kind of, well, how do we interpret this word exactly? Because it was a specific word leveled on what's called social bandits. Robin Hood type folks. Folks who believed that the way forward for Palestine was to rob the rich and give to the poor through forceful acts. Or that included murder, whether it included harm, didn't matter. It was going to happen. It was the only way that the people could be uh, freed and released from their bondage. And so you had this social banditry. And this created a problem, and it created a reputation for Galilee as being a hotbed of revolt. In our class this morning, one of the articles talks about Galilee as like the Berkeley of its day, which is an awful comparison in my mind, but you get the point. It was a place where there was a lot of unrest, perhaps liberalism, whatever that meant back then, which didn't mean anything what it means today, um, and people were really pretty, uh, pretty upset about the social system that was taking place. They were stuck at the bottom, 
and uh, and that wasn't fair. Well, that pretty much sums up in about ten minutes my class for the next four weeks. <laughs> Let me look through this question and answer time uh, and see uh, what kind of questions I have, if any. I need to kind of close up, so let's let's talk about this. Maybe you want to think of your questions, which I can answer uh, there and then. I don't feel like that was really a closing at all, was it? Man, I should have planned a conclusion. Shoot. <laughs> oh, wow. These are really good, good questions. I have two questions in particular uh, that I want to highlight. Um, and I'm not going to answer either of them. Uh, <laughs> But they're so good, I want to ask them. Last week, we talked about uh, taking ownership of societal sin. If we take ownership of societal sin, which, by the way, many of us don't do, how do we take ownership of societal compassion, forgiveness, generosity, grace, and mercy? Is that even a thing? And it is a thing. And we will talk about it in four weeks when we talk about, does the church have an obligation to help heal racial tensions? Uh, according to Paul's way of looking at new humanity and new creation. And the immediate answer to it is absolutely yes. Unequivocally yes. But maybe not in the ways that many of us think. Because we've been very politically inclined. Which in our way uh, of thinking doesn't always coincide with, uh, with kingdom ethics and kingdom perspectives. The next question, which is equally good. Um, although I'm going to answer it really quickly. And then probably talk about it when we talk about classism in, in you know, three or four weeks. Should we pursue being marginalized to better understand the gospel? The answer is no, and um, the other answer is in many ways not to try to diminish certain kinds of marginalization. We are all marginalized. I read a really interesting article from Christianity Today from uh, a group of native missionaries from multiple countries, Philippines, Africa, who articulated an idea, I think an idea that many of us are both comfortable with and uncomfortable with at the same time, and the title of the article was U.S. Persecution uh, of Christians is Far Worse Than It Is in Other Places in the World. And remember, this is written by a group of people, native missionaries, doing missionary work in some of the worst uh, persecuted kind of places around the world. And they made a case for the kind of uh, societal and um, Western and all kinds of forces lurking beneath the scenes uh, for persecution in, uh, of Christians in our society. That was pretty interesting. My wife is looking at me very quizzically. She's a dirty liberal. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, those are excellent questions. And actually, I would refer you to a book if you want uh, to answer the question of should I be marginalized to better understand the gospel. There's two. Uh, um, Chris, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger has an entire section on that. Um, actually, three books. World Vision uh, Director, I can never remember his name, uh, The Hole in Our Gospel, he talks about that. And then um, Spiritual Disciplines by Dallas Willard, uh, he actually has an entire chapter just on should uh, Christians be poor. And the answer is no. First book is uh, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger by Tom Seidler. Second book, can't remember the World Vision guy's name. It's called The Hole in the Gospel. Stern, maybe? World Vision, Hole in the Gospel. Third book, it has a specific chapter at the end of the book about poverty 
is um, a book that we referenced last summer when we did Spiritual Disciplines. Spiritual Disciplines, I don't remember what the book title is, but it's by Dallas Willard, and it's like Essence of Spiritual Disciplines, Age of Spiritual Disciplines, I don't really know. Just, just look it up. Do a Google search. It has a specific chapter on should Christians be poor, and it's Jesus trying to, to uh, communicate that we all should go around kind of you know, pursuing poverty. And the answer is equivocally no, we should not. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.